Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. If you would then take your Bibles and turn with me to Daniel, Daniel chapter 1. Turn with me to Daniel, the very first chapter. If you're not familiar with Daniel, I hope you've uh, read it, but Daniel is a little bit of a tough book. So if you're not familiar with where it is, if you can find Matthew, you're going to turn back uh, some uh, four or five books to the left towards the Old Testament, uh, into the Old Testament, and you'll run across this book of Daniel. Um, it's going to be uh, right before you get to Ezekiel. If you get to Ezekiel, you've gone just a few pages too far. So Daniel chapter 1 is where we're going to look tonight. I'm going to start off and just read a few verses. I'm going to make a valid attempt at doing the entire first chapter tonight. <laughs> Keep in mind, we've only done four chapters in the book of Ephesians in two years. So we're going to make a run at this. Literally, I had 17 pages of stuff on my desk. I was trying to condense down to just a few small points. We're going to fly very high over this passage tonight. I'm just going to point out a few things that I hope drives you to the Word and that you'll go home and read this and let God speak to your heart through it. So let's just start right at the very beginning. I'm just going to read down a little ways. We'll stop and then I'll try and make the points that have uh, popped out at me in this passage about where we are right now in this world. So let's start with the very first verse. It reads like this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim... King of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and Three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. So let's stop reading there and kind of get a run into this particular uh, book and what this chapter is talking about. You'll notice it starts off giving some very specific dates about some very specific people that you can look up in history and see that these people did exist. This is not a parable. This is not a made-up story. This is a piece of history. It really is. This is this is historical writing about this Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and this Nebuchadnezzar, who is king of Babylon. Um, you'll recognize, I think, those those names of those those countries, those cultures, so to speak, Judah and uh, and Babylon. Both you'll hopefully recognize the fact that that Judah was a country that knew our God, that was a godly country, so to speak. Babylon, on the other hand, you will recognize as a name, I believe, that, that today you would associate with the area of Iran or Iraq. Today they're no different than they were then, if it tells you about their inclination towards God. So, so here's two opposing cultures at war. And it says here that uh, this Jehoiakim, uh, king of Judah, became besieged by Nebuchadnezzar. If, if you read exactly what it says in verse 2, 
It happened under the direction of God. Let's not miss that point as it says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah to Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon. God chose (laughs) Judah, this God-fearing nation, to an extent, to be taken over by this godless nation. That's where the chapter starts. He gave instruction, it says, to Ashpenaz, this head honcho, so to speak, the the under ruler, the maybe second in command. Uh, He gave him some instruction of things that he was to do in this takeover. One of those things that they did is they took articles of the house of God from Judah. Uh, Remember the house of God, the tabernacle, the, the temple. It had specific pieces of furniture for specific things. There were a lot of things in within there that, that meant a lot to not only uh, God's people, but to God. It, some of the things in there represented different uh, times that, that the Israelites had been in contact with God, and different uh, articles in there represented different characteristics of God to them. And notice that it says that they were to take some of those, some of those articles of the house of God and not only bring it back to the land of Shinar, the the head property there, so to speak, the capital, maybe you could call it, but not only bring it back, but to put it in the house of their God, which I find very interesting. It brings back thoughts of other places we see that happening in Scripture. If you remember uh, the statue that couldn't stand up overnight, if you remember that story, of course, every time they would stand it back up, they'd come in the next morning and their Statue had fallen over, if you remember. Kind of brings back those thought processes to me as I read that. But but you kind of see this giving over, so to speak, of God's country, God's people, to an ungodly nation. But it didn't stop there. There was other instruction given to Ashpenaz that he was to bring back a certain group of people, a certain select group of people. It, it says there in, in verse 4, just to give you an idea, it says that uh, actually at the end of verse 3, it says some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. It was to bring back some of this hierarchy. But then it gives a more specific thing. It says in verse 4, some young men in whom there is no blemish. Why Why young men? That's a question that comes to my mind. When I, why, why young men? I'm going to kind of fill you in here on that as we go. It says, Young men in whom there is no blemish. To me, when I read that, it means we're, we're looking for the physically fit. We're looking for the strong ones. It goes on to say, uh, not only the, the strong ones, but good looking. <laughs> kind of glad I wasn't around. They probably would have snatched me right up by a bit. And, uh, <laughs> y'all laugh a lot when I say things like that. But the good looking, the good looking. And, and you say to yourself, okay, physically fit. I can, Why good looking? We'll, we'll get an answer to that. They were to be physically appealing, so to speak. It says gifted in all wisdom. So not only were they to be strong, good-looking, but they were to have this, this sense about them of this wisdom, so to speak. You start to see this picture that's being painted. It says gifted in all wisdom. So they were not only just to be intellectually gifted, but they were also to be smart. I kind of look at it like they had Common sense and book sense. You know, sometimes we say people have common sense and no book sense. Some people have book sense and no common sense. They were looking for both. They were looking for somebody who knew how to get things done with nothing and then knew how the thing that they finished was built and could write a paper about it all at the same time. So they were looking for that. Then it says, 
possessing knowledge and quick to understand. Then he goes on to say, who had ability to serve in the king's palace. Are you starting to see why they were asking for these characteristics in these particular men? They wanted them young, fit, smart, good-looking for a purpose, to serve in the king's palace. Immediately when I read that, I think of them with a towel over their arms serving dinner at the table. But we're going to see in a few minutes that's not the case. That's not why they were chosen. With that, they wouldn't have had to been good looking. They wouldn't have had to been smart. They wouldn't have had to been this wisdom or this knowledge in them. They, they wouldn't have had to even be able to learn to do that. So it kind of throws out this picture of a servant, so to speak. Yet it says they're to serve in the king's palace. It goes on to say, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans, by the way, are the people group in the culture of the Babylonians or the country of the Babylonians. So those are the same people group. It's not, not two separate groups of people. Why would they want to be able to teach them language and literature so that they could serve in the king's palace and have all those characteristics? Any thought why they would? I mean, when I read that, it makes me go, why? Why would they have done that? And the room grows quiet. See, think about what Nebuchadnezzar had just captured. A multitude of people, a whole host of folks that were Jewish. The Babylonians, chances are, knew nothing about what it meant to be Jewish. They knew nothing about what it meant to have that culture, nothing about what their customs were. Could you imagine this Ashpenaz trying to go in and lead this new group of people not knowing anything about their culture? It would be like taking one of us and dumping us in the middle of Africa and say, okay, you're now the president of this nation, lead them. We'd have no idea what their customs were, anything. So this King Nebuchadnezzar had a brilliant idea, in all honesty. He said, give me the best of the best while they're young so that we may train them. And they're going to serve the king. Any idea how they're going to serve the king? They're going to lead the bunch that he just captured because it's one of their people so they'll be recognized they know their customs. If they can get them to take the Chaldean customs and apply them to the customs of the people, the people should follow. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar's thinking. It's a brilliant, brilliant plan. That he didn't just go in and slaughter them. He went in to figure out how to take them over and incorporate them into Babylon. That, that's the vision that he has there. So they brought four of the best. Four of the best. It goes down here and... and it says in verse 6, he brought out these, these four that are highlighted in verse 6. It says, Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. How many of you know about those four girls? Anybody? You hear those names all the time, don't you? Yeah, yeah. So that's, you know, I, I start thinking about this Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, and somehow I don't get a vision of good looks, strong intelligent but this Daniel guy we know about him there's a whole book here written you know with this Daniel but see they apparently were the best of the best it wasn't that they just brought four but there's these four that are going to be highlighted for us and I, I find this really um, amazing because his entire purpose was to lead this this group that he had captured and he chose these four men out of this group along with a whole host of others and these four now are going to be highlighted for us why would I pick tonight to 
talk about this. To be quite honest with you, about a week ago, this was on my heart. Not having any idea who was going to win the election last night. I'll tell you right up front. I told some others I voted for Hillary myself. I'll just go ahead and tell you. I was wrong the last two elections. I figured maybe if I voted for that, would I be wrong again? But yeah, I'm just kidding. It was a joke. I didn't vote for Hillary. Um, I, I had no idea who the president was going to be. But you know what I did know? No matter when I woke up this morning who the president was going to be, we had the exact same job to do regardless. We were called to do the exact same thing if they had decided there was going to be no president and Obama was staying in. We had the same job to do if it wound up being Hillary or if it wound up being Trump. Because in case you don't know it, it doesn't matter who the president is, God's still king. God's still king. And he still called us to do one thing. And I think the one thing that's pictured in this first chapter of Daniel is this look at a fella who gives us the example of what it means to live an uncompromising life. You think about the culture we're in right now. What's wrong with the world we live in right now? Everybody compromises on everything to make everybody happy. Nobody stands on the truth of anything anymore because somebody's offended. Nobody wants to stand up and says, this is the way it is, and I'm sorry if it hurts your feelings. Everybody wants to get along with everybody and have everybody love everybody. I'm sorry. God said the, the gospel is going to be offensive to some folks. And it's those folks who don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And if it's offensive to them, it doesn't mean that I should water down the gospel and make it less offensive. It's supposed to be offensive because if they're not offended, they're not going to change. So we have to uncompromisingly live the gospel. Step back in the Old Testament, Daniel shows us, I think, a beautiful picture of, of the uncompromising life. Let's look at what Nebuchadnezzar tried to do to change all this about them. The first thing that he did is he... Decided to change their identity. I asked if you recognize those names, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and uh, Azariah. Maybe you'll recognize them by the names that were given in verse 7. If you look at verse 7, Daniel was given the name Belteshazzar. Hananiah was given Shadrach. Mishael was given Meshach. And Azariah was given Abednego. You recognize those names, don't you? You recognize those. So, so we see now you're starting to go, oh, I remember something about this line thing and something about a furnace or something going on, some kind of hot thing happening. You, you're starting to put the picture of who these folks are together. Way before you get to the story of this line or this fire, way before you get to that is this character of who they were as they were brought into this country. So why the name change? See, when I read that, I go, that's kind of strange. Why would you capture them and change their name? In a way, the first step in changing a person is to change their identity, so to speak. He steps out and tries to change their identity. It's really interesting, though, to understand why they didn't want them to keep the original names. Do you have any idea why they didn't want them to keep the original names? Sure, if you look, Daniel and Mishael, do you happen to notice, end in the same two letters? Hananiah and Azariah end in the same two letters. Of course, this is written in English. If you went back and looked at the Hebrew for Daniel and Mishael, there would be a hyphen between their 
broken down name and the E-L. Does E-L ring anything, any bells for you at all? See, E-L, El, is the name of God for the Hebrews. See, when, when their name was said, the last two characters, if you look at the Hebrew, and their name was this name of God. Every time their name was spoken, it resonated. It was part of their history, their character. The, the A-H, it's a little harder to understand with the A-H because it's actually spelled Y-A-W uh, or J-A-H if it's according to which root you take of the word whenever you look at those. But but those are, are a word that you would probably associate uh, this, this Yah, this Jah, we would say like Yah, and if I were to throw that out and ask you what the rest of it was, you would say way, Yahweh, which is the name for the Lord. So both of their sets of names had built into them God, this God that they worshipped. Well, guess what? When they changed their name, do you think they allowed it to still be connected to their God? No, it was connected to their culture, their entire outward identity what they were called, the name that would be spoken to them every time was no longer going to reflect their God. It was going to reflect the culture. So the very first thing that Nebuchadnezzar did was say, let's change their outward identity. What's the second thing that he did? Because he not only changed their name, but he also decided he was going to teach them everything about the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. If you want to take over somebody and you want to change them, you change their name so that you're calling them by a different name. And then you change everything that they learn and understand to what you want them to understand. Sounds a lot like our school system now, doesn't it? See, one of the things that they were attacking was their culture. I thought about it as I read that. The things that we've changed in our school system for kids that are very little at the time it was changed that now have grown to be adults and are pushing the things that they learned as a little kid. For instance, how many people get really uncomfortable around you if you decide at the dinner table you're going to stop at Golden Corral and you're going to bow your head and say a prayer over your meal in the group of all the folks. Have you ever looked around you when you're done? The multitude of the folks sitting around you are going to be very uncomfortable. Why is that? Because the ones sitting around you when they were about that big were taught that you can't say prayer in school. Somebody's going to be offended. They were taught that it was offensive to say prayers. We have a multitude of folks being murdered every year. We have a multitude of other things, people running off with people's wives. We have thefts just out the roof now. And it seems like all of those things I just mentioned were in a list of things that God told us we shouldn't do. You remember what that list was? The Ten Commandments. Find it in a school building. Find it in a courthouse even now. See, those things were taken out <laughs> when they were little. And now when they're 30 years old, they never learned those things, so to them they don't apply. You see, it's the same approach that Nebuchadnezzar were taking with these folks. Let's re-educate them. Brainwash them is what we would call, in essence. So they, they did that. The third thing that I noticed that he said he was going to try to do, and I'll try and speed this up, we're never going to get to the end, is in verse 5. I skipped over a while ago. Verse 5, it says this, And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank. And after that it said they would be trained for some three years. So he was not only going to change their name, 
He was going to re-educate them, a three-year process of retraining, but he was going to change their lifestyle. See, he was going to change their name, he was going to change their education, and he was going to completely change their lifestyle. You see, because to eat from the king's table would have meant that you were somebody special. You were eating the best of the best. You were drinking the best wine. It was always a party at the king's table. And see, they were completely changing uh, his life, their lifestyle. He wanted to control everything about them. Here's the thing I find very interesting. The first two things, the name change and the education, they didn't argue with. Not the first time. Do, do, do you notice? If, if you know the rest of the text, and we'll read it briefly, there was no argument whatsoever from them. Their name that had God in it was changed. They didn't say a word. They were set into a three-year higher education learning process. No arguments. Why wouldn't they complain about those two things? Any idea? Uh, I'm sorry? Very good. I think of it like this. It doesn't matter what you call me. I know what God calls me. A child of the king. Makes no difference if you change my name. I'm still a child of the king. That's, that's an external thing. Doesn't change who I am. Even my education. Put me in the worst of the worst. But if this went into my head ahead of time, I can sift everything that you teach me through this and wind up with the truth and throw out those things that are not true. See, they already understood that everything they needed to survive with a different name and a different education had already been given because they had faith in God. So they were willing to let those things happen because ultimately it didn't change anything. But if you'll notice, when it comes to the lifestyle change, um, they get a totally different reaction, a totally different reaction with the, the lifestyle thing. See, whenever he was implementing the third thing, it says in verse 8, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies nor drink wine which he drank. So he didn't argue about the name. He didn't argue about the education, but he was going to argue about the meal. Why? Why would it make any difference? See, we don't think about it because things changed when the New Testament came into light. Do you remember in the New Testament a man being on a roof and a white sheet coming down that was covered in animals? Do you remember? Do you remember what the purpose was, why God had the white sheet come down for them to see the animals on? What was the purpose? He was saying, <laughs> I made all these things. They're now okay for you to eat. Now was that the Old Testament or was that in the New Testament? New Testament. So the Old Testament then, since that person on the roof, seeing the white sheep, knew the law from the Old Testament and didn't want to partake of those things, so there must have been something in the Old Testament that hindered him until that moment. Is that right? If you go back and read the law of the Old Testament, there were things set forth that they could not eat of. People still today come up, they love to argue the Bible. They'll always come up to you and say, well... Okay, you say we can't do this, we can't do that. It says you can't eat fish with scales too. Why do you do that? It's because there's a New Testament. See, be careful the laws you want to pull from the Old Testament and argue. Only argue the laws from the Old Testament you see repeated in the New Testament. 
See, there are things in the law of the Old Testament that we still adhere to in the New Testament times because they were repeated in the New Testament. When it came to the, the eating and those things, that's all been changed. I gave you the example with the sheet coming down. But in Daniel's time, that was still the law. Here's a couple of things that he understood is that God's law trumped man's law. <laughs> to do what God wanted was more important to do what man wanted. So with that thought in mind, what were the characteristics of an uncompromising life? We're going to take those thoughts, run through as many of these as I can in one shot tonight. The very first thing I saw as I read this and I thought about it, thinking about that particular part about the eating and picking up in verse 8 there, I thought about Daniel's unwavering boldness in the face of the culture and in the face of what he knew about God. It's just unwavering boldness. See, the king had assigned this official, this Asphanes we saw there in verse 3. It, it was a, so important to the king that his edict, his demand be followed, that he had put a head honcho in charge of this. So it wasn't like a secondary thought. To the king, it was important. And Ashpenaz instructed them to do those things which the king wanted with that eating being one of the major keys. We don't have to worry about the education and names because it's obvious it wasn't an issue. But the eating thing was a big issue with Daniel apparently. Because it says in verse 8, Daniel purposed in his heart. I think that points us in a really good direction of what we should do in situations in our life. Our decisions should start in our heart and work themselves outward, not start outward and try to be worked into our heart. Daniel's first thought when he heard what he was supposed to do is, what has God put in my heart? Our world would be really different if everybody thought that way, but believe it or not, it would be dramatically different if Christians alone thought that way. Oftentimes, we give it a run, and when it fails, we ask for God's help. But look what Daniel did. Daniel immediately in his heart said, to do that will defile me. That was his first thought. Daniel knew what God had instructed him to do. He also knew what God instructed him not to do. So in his heart, he already knew what to do. I'd ask a raise of hands, but how many of you had a decision to make that you made the decision knowing in your heart it wasn't what God wanted you to do? And if I were to ask you to raise your hand and then ask each of you to tell me how it turned out, I know what the answer would be. Not so good. <laughs> We've all done it. That's called sin. See, that's what sin is. Is knowing that which you should do, but choosing to do that which you shouldn't do. That's sin. And Daniel knew to do that which he knew in his heart because of what God had put in his heart, to do that would be sin, which is the defilement of himself. Is the way it said there in the Word. He refused to eat and drink the wine because he did not want to defile himself. Here's what I find very interesting. He not winds up telling this to this head honcho or his eunuch, his assistant. I thought to myself, if I was put in that situation, if I was put in a situation I knew I couldn't eat something, there are a thousand other things that I could tell them to keep from having to eat that besides saying, and I can't do that because that's going to defile me in God's eyes. So Daniel could have simply said, ah, y'all use this, my stomach just can't take those spices. I got an ulcer. I just can't, you know. He could have said, man, y'all, 
that soup is just way too rich for uh, there's just no I won't even be able to go to school tomorrow I won't be able to show up to educate. if I eat that it's just gonna mess my whole system up because I've got a high on a hernia I can't eat that this late maybe just give me some water I want to be able to sleep so I can be rested there are a thousand things he could have said to not have to eat it we've all been there We've all been in a situation where God has set right before us an opportunity for us to speak up and say, you know, God wouldn't think a whole lot of me if I did that. Yet we've used a different excuse to get to the same conclusion. (laughs) You see what Daniel did? Daniel went straight at it. He said, I can't do it because it's going to defile me. Think how different the world would be, our world, if every time we faced a decision that we knew God was telling us to do something different, if we told the person that was asking us to do that, you know, I can't do that because that's going to be a sin against my God. Nothing against you, but God said I shouldn't, so I'm going to choose to do what God wants me to do. Because Daniel didn't beat him over the head. He just simply said, hey, Ashpenaz, it's a, it's a sin, so I'm going to bow out if that's okay with you. And I find it kind of neat that he had this just unwavering boldness to say that to the king. Because ultimately that's what he was saying. Because what was the penalty to not do what the king wanted? Cut your head off. He was saying, I'd rather have my head cut off than to eat something that God told me not to eat. Physically, that doesn't really fit on the scales too well for me. Okay, God will forgive me. I think I'll have that cheeseburger anyway if it means I'm going to have my head lopped off. He said, no, I would rather die than to sin against my God. Wow, <laughs> you, you talking about an uncompromising life? That, that's a biggie. That is a biggie. But not only did he have an unwavering boldness, he kind of had this uh, uncommon standard, I guess you could call it. It was, it was really a strange standard. Keep in mind, the dietary laws of the time said there were certain things you couldn't eat when it came to uh, meat. Certain things. So that meant there were other things you could eat which were meat. So he could have simply told Asphanes, you know what? If you're serving pork, probably going to bow out on that meal. Now, if you're going to have a beef steak, count me in. If you're serving this type of fish, we're not going to be able to participate that day. But if you do this kind, we're all in. He could have simply said, hey, I'm going to pick and choose according to the law. Would he have been right in God's laws? Sure. Because God had said what not to and what to do. So he could have picked the to do's and said, I'm not going to participate in the not do's. But he set a totally different standard. (laughs) He said in verse 12, Please test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. See, he didn't just take the very minimum and, and even chance the wrong thing. He knew that the vegetables, which by the way, the Hebrew word for vegetables means to sow. It's, so it's things that are sown, the seeds that are sown, which all fit into the dietary laws. So he said, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll take it right down to what I know beyond a shadow of a doubt fits into God's plan. We'll eat the vegetables and we'll drink the water. (laughs) He could have set the standard at a different place. 
But because he was unwavering in his boldness, because he, he wanted to be uncompromising, he set the standard where it would be obvious that he was doing within God's laws. You'll see the reason why here in a minute. He chose to eat really what were servants' meals, the, the poorest of the poor, the, the things that nobody else wanted. The, you know, if, you, if I gave you a choice, we're going to eat out back at the house or you, know, you can come over while I'm eating out back and you can have a cucumber. I'll even give you a salt shaker or whatever to go with it. That, that's the way it was. Because it doesn't say that they took Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and put them in a different place. I envision it doesn't really say, but I would assume since they were all brought together, they were all educated together, they were probably all housed together, they probably all ate together. Here they were going to sit at a table with a pig laid out on a table, all you could eat, and they were going to get a bowl full of tomatoes and, and cucumbers. That's a pretty uncommon standard. He could have said it at a different place, but so the, the the he so he set this standard far above what was really required by the law. I think to be within the law, obviously, but I think also in Daniel's heart, he was trying to get a message across to King Nebuchadnezzar, and the message was, "Is my God is sufficient?" Because that's why he said, "Test us and see how this turns out." You know, you can spot a person that leaves protein out of their diet after a few days, can't you? Start looking a little bit different. If you have no protein in your diet, your body doesn't really look like everybody else's. You kind of get gaunt, I think is maybe the word that we would use for it. But he said, just just test us. Let's see the standard. Here's what he knew. Even though the standard was set so low that physically it may be a problem, he knew that because of an unwavering boldness, this uncommon standard, he knew that there was this unequal protection from his God even in this process. He knew that he wasn't going to be left to his own. How do I know that? Because it says in verse 9, it says, Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. You see, Daniel had purposed in his heart to do that which would honor God. He had set the standard where there was no question that it was going to be God that got him through it. And because of that, God made Daniel favored and of goodwill to the chief eunuch. Why is that important? Because you know, if having your head lopped off for disobeying the law applied to Daniel, you know who else it applied to? Ashpenaz. You see, because it was his job to make sure what the king said was done. So for him to allow them to not participate placed his head on the same chopping block as Daniel's. So what was Ashpenaz probably going to do? He was going to make them eat it. Because really for him it was life or death, not because of the eating or not eating, but because the law being broke. See, even though... Daniel was asking for something that put him in death's way and Ashpenaz was the eunuchs in death's way. It says that God made him favored in the eyes of the chief eunuch. The guy who was really over top of it favored Daniel. That was God working his, his will even in the heart of a person who didn't know him as God. And he was doing it, as we'll see in a few minutes, for 
his glory. So God granted him this. Another thing I find amazing, we think about this Daniel, I believe when we, when we see, and we, we go back to our Bible school days when we see pictures of, of people, and you get this picture of an old man with a white beard. Keep in mind, Daniel at this point in time, best I could tell in reading, was probably at best early teenager. Early teenager. Stripped away from his mom and dad, aunts and uncles, grandfather, everybody, placed in a country that nobody knew him and was told to obey these new standards and everybody who had the old standards were nowhere to be found. So had he obeyed the new standards, there was no mom and dad to say, you know you're not supposed to do that. There was no granddaddy there to say, boy, I can't believe you do. Without my name, I can't believe you do. There was nobody from his past to hold him accountable in the present as a teenager. And he says, I need to do that's what is right in God's eyes. God's response, you're favored and protected. So he had this unequal protection. Why the unequal protection? It's because of what I called his unblemished faith. This is the big point for me. Unblemished faith. We all have faith, I believe, that know Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. We all have faith that God is who God is. Yet, if we're honest with ourselves, there's those times in our life that it doesn't show very well. It doesn't show very well. That's why there's continual need for forgiveness and repentance in our life. Why do you hear me so often talk about repentance? Because repentance, if you really wrap your arms around it and grasp it for what it is, means that you're not only asking for forgiveness of what you did, but you're making a covenant with God to not go back there again. We as Christians have a way of asking for forgiveness with the thought in the back of our mind that God will forgive us the next time we do the same thing again. That's, that's not really strong faith. That's blemished faith. It's, yes, trusting in God, but it's... It's allowing the white robe to pick up a little dirt that doesn't get completely washed off, it seems like, or the spots come back really quick. This, this Daniel, he had what I, I would call unblemished faith because he did say there in, in, in verse 12, as we read just a minute ago, he says, please test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. He says, then, then, let our appearance be examined by you. He's saying... Let's try this weird standard, this standard that I know you want us to eat these things, and I know that if we don't eat those things and we just eat vegetables, we're going to look different. I know it's going to make you a little uncomfortable if we do it, but just, just bear with me for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, you come and you examine us, and whatever you say at that point, that's what we'll do. Ashford has if he had wanted to really get by on things, the eunuchs had really wanted to still get their way, they could have said, okay, for 10 days, we'll let them do what they want to do. At the end of 10 days, we'll say, no, you look worse than the others. Now you've got to eat our stuff. And we're through with the whole problem. We'll compromise and we'll be through with the whole situation. There's no bloodshed. Nobody's head got cut off. Everybody's happy. But what did Daniel know? He says, then let our appearance be examined by you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies and if you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them in 10 days. You know what it took for Daniel to look this guy in the eye that already had proven his untrustworthiness because he had captured them, <laughs> locked them up, changed their name, 
trying to re-educate them, trying to eat, make them eat something they weren't supposed to. The guy, the guy that was the head was not to be trusted. Yet it seems that Daniel was trusting him. Who was he really trusting? God. See, he knew right in the middle of the situation, if he did what God wanted him to do, God had shown favor to get the eunuch's ear to even hear the request from Daniel. He put his entire faith in God that the outcome would be that which God wanted. His entire faith was unblemished, even in the middle of this circumstance. It said it was so strong, his faith was so strong in verse 14, that the eunuch consented. He didn't even argue. If you back up and read the verses up in 10, he talks about how much he feared the the king, how much he was worried about the, the king killing him. Yet when Daniel says, I tell you what, you you just you test us. You, you be the deciding factor at the end of 10 days. It says the eunuch consented. To me, that is a faith beyond all faiths. Could you imagine being locked up somewhere knowing that if you didn't do what you were supposed to do, it was going to wind up being death? Yet you just told him, said, hey, just give me 10 days. At the end of 10 days, if you see fit, cut my head off. Would you have that kind of faith to do what God said if there was somebody saying, you don't do what the king says, I'm going to kill you. But you, would you have the faith to say, God, it's on you. I'm going to do what you said. It's yours. Because see, that, that's what faith is. Not seeing the outcome, but seeing the God of the outcome. Realize it doesn't matter what's at the end because you know who's walking with you. Daniel, right in the midst of all this, was so tightly held to God that he was just like, you test us because I know my God's got this. So he had this just unblemished face. Really quick, I'm going to skip to the end because I've already run over time. The the last point, there are several more in between I didn't get to. The, The last point is the unequal blessing that came from this uncompromised life. You see, sometimes we think that this uncompromised life we're supposed to live is going to be such a doldrum that we're going to wind up being that Christian that nobody wants to be, that looks like you've been sucking on lemons all the time. There's no joy in your life because God won't let you do anything. you got to watch your P's and Q's. You can't have fun with life because God says you can't have fun. We are so afraid that to do what God wants us to do in the face of those who think it's wrong, for instance... We all, I think, are probably rejoicing that Trump got to be president. Guess what? In case you're not aware of it, I feel pretty sure that if God calls us home tonight, he ain't going to make the bus. He can say all he wants that he's a Christian, but there ain't no fruit hanging on the tree. If that's the case, he is not God's man. The J in the middle of his name does not stand for Jesus. You see... We put our faith in that, not that he's a bad person. He, in my opinion, as weak and feeble as it may be, it was the best choice. Yet at the same time, he's not the answer. God's the answer. And see, we we think sometimes that, okay, everything he does, boy, it's going to be good for us. No, you better purpose from your heart whether or not it's the right thing. You're not to go against the government unless... That thing which God has purposed in your heart is in direct opposition to that. If God has said that man and woman is the only way to have marriage, I don't care if Trump makes it a law that you could have two women and two men married, it's still wrong, I'm not going to do it. Lock me up and cut my head off. I'd rather God love me than Trump love me. 
we got to realize at the end of the day, <laughs> the blessing from God is way superior to anything that man can bless us with. See, there's an unequal blessing, very quick, down in verse 17. I'm just going to give you three verses of the blessing. You go home and fill in the blanks. Verse 17. It says, For as for these four young men, four young men, Daniel, uh, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the four men, it says, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. You talk about smart. They not only had all of the Jewish intellect they had learned, on top of that they had all understanding of the Chaldean understanding and teaching, which was pretty good at that time. And above that, Daniel could tell you what your dream meant. <laughs> you talk about being blessed. They were blessed. Look at verse 20. It says, In all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king had examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all of his realm. When the king brought them before, you'll see between those verses where I just read, when the king brought them forward and examined them, what did he find out? The smartest of the smart in all of Babylon, they were ten times times better, smarter, more intellectual than those folks. Why? God blessed them. And then in verse 21 it says, Thus Daniel continued to the first year of King Cyrus. Any idea how long it was from this time they were captured to the first year of King Cyrus? Seventy years. Seventy years he stayed in the presence of the king, in the favor of of those. Matter of fact, if you look when they're uh, when those that were captured are led out after Daniel's passing, you'll see the fingerprints of Daniel on that movement. His his movement with the king, his his wisdom in the king's uh, business, those things that he had done in that kingdom because of God's blessing on him led to those being let loose. You see. An uncompromising life is not a burden, it is a blessing. Why did I pick tonight to tell you about that? We stand at the crossroads in our world. We stand at the crossroads right now in our world. Very, very many people, very, very many Christians think that there has been an answer to prayer with Hillary not being in and Trump being in. And it, it may be, yes, an answer to prayer, but it is not the answer. It is not the answer. The answer to fixing this world that we live in is for us to live like the name that we carry, Christ. That answer to what's going on in our world is for us to not compromise on our beliefs, our faith in God, and what God says is right and wrong. We must be like Daniel. We must not shove it down people's throat. Nobody wants to hear anything they're beat over the head with. But when we are confronted with that crossroad of God's way or the law or man's way, we're to take God's way uncompromisingly, regardless of whether it means it's the last decision we ever make on this earth. Because for the ultimate glory of God to be done, we must live as if we believe that He's in honor of that glory. And I think for the world and our country to ever change and have God as head over this country again, it must start with us, the Christians. 
we must start living an uncompromised life based on the Word of God solely and taking that basis and telling folks when a person gives you the opportunity. I have a mentor just real quick. I know I've run over. The not drinking of the wine. It's a question that always comes up. I don't know how many times as a pastor I'm asked, is it okay to drink alcohol? I tell you, I don't care. Drink it if you want to drink it. That's your business. Do you know one of the reasons Daniel didn't drink the wine? It wasn't because it was against God's law, because do you realize it was not? That was not on the list of don'ts. Because to drink wine in that day and time was like me offering you a glass of tea when you come to the house. It was a diluted mixture of water and wine because they didn't have the processes of purifying water. And it does say you shouldn't drink strong drink, which was undiluted wine. But in this case, the word that was used there was for regular diluted wine. He didn't drink it. He also didn't bring his own Jewish wine to drink. He forbid all of it from himself, not because God did, but he did it for the exact same reason. He didn't choose the meat he could eat and chose the vegetables. He knew it was better to choose the best than just the good. See, there is a good thing we can do for God than there's the best thing we can do for God. It's just like the question on the drinking. See, it's not a problem. If I come to your house and you want to drink a beer, help yourself. If you offer me one, I hope God strikes you dead on the spot. Because you know what I know about me? In case you haven't noticed, I have an addictive personality. Have you ever noticed that about me? You know what one leads to with me? Two, two to three, three to four, four to a case, and I sleep on your couch that night. I know that about me. Things about me, I have an addictive personality. I know that I can't sit down and do that. You know what I also know? When a non-Christian sees you doing it, they think you're putting a stamp of approval on it for them. And there's not a person in the world or in this room that can tell me that drinking alcohol doesn't affect your mental capacity because that's what it's designed to do. The Bible actually says that a king should never drink alcohol. Why? Because he has to make decisions that are important and should never be watered down by alcohol on their head. There's a reason that you avoid certain things even if God hasn't said you can't do that. You avoid it for the perception of it to the world around you. You see, we need to live that way on every decision we make. We need to not just stay at the minimum requirement. We need to go to the maximum so that when God sees us, He is pleased with us and we are favored in the sight of those in the world. Favored to the point that we can speak into their heart the Word of God. So that's my desire for us. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.